VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. In the drawing room, a group of suspects gathered. The detective has solved the mystery. Ladies and gentlemen, the butler did it. <laughs> You'll never catch me. The butler darted to his getaway car. But what he didn't know is this is a Nissan sales event ad. Wait, what? And his car is no match for the detective's Nissan Rogue or its standard VC turbo engine. Save on one of your own at the Nissan Thrill of the Drive sales event. Now get 0% APR financing for 36 months on select models. Availability is limited. For well-qualified buyers, 0% APR financing for 36 months available on new 2023 Altima Rogue and Pathfinder when financed through NMAC. Must take delivery from new dealer stock. 36 months financing at $27.78 per month per thousand financed. Actual down payment may vary subject to residency restrictions and NMAC credit approval. Not all buyers qualified. Dealer contribution may affect actual price set by dealer. Contact dealer for details. Offer ends 2 You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. What are you getting so crazy about? It's just music. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Codd. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I are joined by San Francisco trio, The Dodos. We talk to the band about unique instruments, African rhythms, and even food. And later on, we'll review the new albums from Nora Jones and Them Crooked Vultures. You are listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. Give me a ticket for an aeroplane Ain't got time to take a fast train Lonely days are gone, I'm a-going home My baby just wrote me a letter Ah, yes, that's Alex Chilton and the Box Tops with The Letter. Mr. Cott, the customers of Verizon Communications, who get their internet service provided by that company, may soon be getting letters themselves if they are downloading music illegally. Verizon has confirmed a nice scoop that CNET News broke that they are going to be going after their customers who they suspect of uh, trading music files illegally online. How are they doing that? There are apparently computer algorithms that will red flag customers who are trading a lot of big files back and forth, uploading and downloading. If they suspect that you're doing that illegally, you're going to get a nasty letter. Why is this significant? Well, two things. Number one, Verizon has been vocal in defending its customers against anybody who wants to know how they're using the Internet and claiming they might be using the Internet illegally. They have resisted anti-piracy efforts from other companies. Comcast, for example, was much quicker to uh, help big Hollywood go after its customers if they were downloading movies or music. Number two, getting a nasty letter from your Internet service provider saying, we think you're illegally downloading music or movies stop is the first step towards what comes next in France as we've mentioned many times in recent weeks that's going to be eventually you're going to get banned from the internet period no service provider will give you service in France anymore if you are caught illegally downloading or uploading files three times three strikes and you're out Well, it's important to note, Jim, that we don't really know what the follow-up is going to be. Okay, they're going to send you these letters. They're going to tell you you should stop doing what you're doing. 
what is going to be the hammer that follows that letter if you continue to persist in this uh, activity? Verizon is saying nothing right now. But then again, the RIAA, the Recording Industry Association of America, is not commenting on this at all. They are clearly the ones pushing Verizon in this direction. Although it started to change for Verizon in 2005 when the company began sending people these letters at the behest of Disney in the movie uh, downloading realm. Why is that interesting? Well, Verizon says, okay, Disney, we'll pass letters along uh, notifying our customers about copyright violations if you add 12 of your channels to our broadband network. (laughs) You know, once again, we're seeing Internet service providers increasingly get in bed with big media. You've seen it with Comcast and NBC, and you're seeing it with Verizon and Disney and ABC, which means that, you know, all of the content you're getting and the way that you get it may soon be controlled by one big company. Mm -hmm. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. That is Mariah Carey with a song called Obsessed from her latest album, Memoirs of an Imperfect Angel. I love that title. That is such a classic Mariah Carey album title, right? But uh, here we are about to mention her in the same breath with uh, Nine Inch Nails, Radiohead, Pearl Jam as major corporations, mega corporations that are reinventing the music business. Uh, The music business, as we know, is, is imploding, changing dramatically. Those bands are reinventing the new way that these uh, mega bands are going to do business. And Mariah Carey may be trumping them all, which is fascinating to me. This article in the Sunday Times in London made the case that Mariah Carey may be the most innovative business person in music right now. Ten years ago, I don't think anybody could have said that. No. Uh, That was a time when uh, her career seemed to be imploding. She had just made that glitter movie, which bombed dramatically. Her record company, Virgin, basically had a $100 million deal with Mariah Carey at the time. They paid her $50 million just to leave the label. They wanted (laughs) nothing more to do with her. (laughs) She seemed a little lost in, in this world, not really perceived as an astute businesswoman. Now I think she's making Madonna look like an amateur, at least the way the the Sunday Times is portraying her. She's doing a couple of things. We mentioned that Elle magazine basically paid for her last album when we reviewed it. The numbers are now out. That was a $7 million album. Elle magazine, instead of Mariah endorsing the magazine, she has the magazine endorse her. So when you buy the, the CD, you get this copy of Elle magazine, which is full of products endorsed by Mariah Carey. Now, here's part two of the equation. All of those products she has a business deal with. She says she's forming more companies than her lawyers can keep up with. So instead of going through her record company to create these licensing deals, she's doing them herself. She says the businesses are called things like Mirage and Maroon Entertainment. They're based on silly names that I made up in high school. Now she's turning these into massive businesses for herself. So, I mean, a $7 million record that she got somebody else to pay for, now she's creating business deals with companies that are advertised in the magazine that is endorsing her album. But they're really advertising her. Exactly. So the brand of Mariah is everywhere. Publishing, tourism, food, drink, cosmetics. Music is just one sidelight to what she's doing right now. My favorite part of that extensive London Times article, Greg, came at the end where, lest anyone from the, uh, like, you know, rock and roll world accuse Mariah Carey of being a sellout, she answers them directly. I don't care if the rock band person thinks, oh, I'm a sellout. Guess what? They're a sellout anyway for going to a record company. I'm sorry, you are. You just want to play in (laughs) bands and bars? Then do that or play on the street. And if someone throws you some dollars, you can go get a soda. But you could also help somehow merge the soda business with the music business. Yeah. 
You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that is a song called Long Form from the latest Dodos record, Time to Die. The Dodos, a San Francisco trio, originally formed in 2006 as Dodo Bird by multi-instrumentalist Merrick Long. A guy with an interesting background, he studied uh, ethnomusicology in college, acoustic guitar player, very influenced by John Fahey. He decided to meld those influences into an indie rock band that wasn't going to sound like every other indie rock band. Things really came together when he collaborated with Logan Krober, a fellow West Coast musician, a drummer, and as a duo, they recorded a very well-received album called Visitor in 2008 that there was their commercial breakthrough. Long said, okay, we're going to take it a step further. They decided to add a vibraphonist to the full-time lineup for their third record, a guy by the name of Keaton Snyder, and their 2009 record, Time to Die, just came out with Phil Eck, uh, who's worked with bands like The Shins and Fleet Foxes, producing bringing them to an even wider audience. Greg, we first saw them this year at the Pitchfork Music Festival in the summer. They came back later in the fall, and while they were coming back to Chicago, they stopped by the Jim and K. Maybe studio for a uh, performance and a chat. We're here in the Jim and K. Maybe studio with the Dodos, uh, Merrick Long, Logan Krober, and Keaton Snyder. Guys, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thank you. Merrick, let's get a little bit of the history of the band. It kind of started with you as a, a solo project back in uh, 2006, right? That's correct, yes. Give us a sense of what that was all about. I mean, I know you were, you were a chef in San Francisco at the time, and uh, how, did, <laughs> how did this music thing sort of take over your life? Well, I was not quite a chef. I was more of a lowly line cook. And <laughs> basically, I moved to San Francisco and wanted to form a band, and I'd played in bands before, but... I wanted to find the right people by just starting performing and recording and hoping that, you know, the right people would come to me instead of having to like put out ads and, and put together this, you know, four or five piece of varying egos that would make it difficult. Um, (laughs) so yeah, I just started playing out wherever I could and writing songs and met Logan through his cousin who I was living with at the time. And Logan started, I made a recording and Logan came and performed on a couple songs, just the drum parts that I laid down. And then we started to kind of play off that. And as the, as the more we played, the more we started to kind of gel and figure out something. Mm-hmm. You were coming at the this whole approach to forming a band. It seemed like you didn't want your typical indie rock band, guitar, bass, drums. You, you certainly wanted to sound a little bit different too. I mean, you know, I know that it, you've talked about this a lot, but, you know, you studied ethnomusicology in, in college, and some of that filtered into your into your ideas about rhythm, and also your approach to guitar playing was a little bit different. Could could you talk a, a little bit about your ideas for, you know, what this band was going to sound like at, at the start? Well, one thing that I came across er, earlier in my perform performance years as a solo artist was a mm-hmm. finger-pick-style acoustic guitar, and I although I'd heard a lot of that style of playing in songs, I'd never really seen it live. And the first time I saw it live was by a young guy named Paul Carreri, and he has a really aggressive style. And just seeing it happen, it kind of evoked this this idea that each string could be a guitar. The basic idea for the band was just to take that sound and amplify it and mm-hmm. basically make, basically make try and make it what it would sound like if your head was inside the hole of an acoustic guitar mm-hmm. and the drums were just kind of pounding. Since you have your guitar on, Merrick, can you illustrate exactly what, or just a, a little of that Crary style that you're, you're talking about? Okay. Just where, you know, where the bass line is, is going and then, I don't know. I mean, it's it's kind of... I didn't formally learn how to play that style, so I kind of just took what I saw and goofed around that. Um, when we started playing, Logan had come from this, like, uh, he was playing in a metal band at the time, and that sort of, like, aggressive energy, I think, really mixed well with my approach to the guitar. The stuff that from studying ethnomusicology that kind of filtered in was just the role of rhythm and the role of the drums and the guitar not being typical in that, the the guitar could actually work as a timekeeper, and the drums can almost work as a soloist mm-hmm. or you know adding a melody. melodies. Logan, you're sitting over there with what would be a conventional drum set, except that there's no bass drum. And uh, uh, was it weird to go from playing you know four four stomping metal to to some of these polyrhythms? <laughs> the weirdness was more just the style change 
because Merrick and I actually tend to agree on a lot of like more progressive rhythmic stuff. He comes from a different place than I do, or we did back then. But like I was always trying to do weird stuff with rhythm, mm. and it was more just like kind of like toning down the machismo because I was coming from a a very metal place <laughs> and sort of getting together with this guy in this bedroom and just like playing on a drum or two and doing mm -hmm. these quirky little rhythms was more like the big sea change in my head. And it, it's not something that I resisted. It was just like, it just opened up new, new stuff to me. Well, why don't we, uh, why don't we hear a song before we get too much uh, further along? Kadooki. What are you going to play for us? This song's called Fables. That was Fables by the Dodos on Sound Opinions. Great stuff, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
for uh, the fact that we're on radio, I have to explain, Greg, the uh, Logan has got a tambourine duct taped to his sneaker <laughs> <laughs> on the left. Very high tech, very effective, though. You know, they have stands that hold them. If also, you it's also very beautiful, stylish, and, you know, yeah. it's like ergonomically correct when I walk around the stage. You could, well, if you get <laughs> another so one, many you have two of them, you could be a trendsetter, it. you know? No, it's like this leg's actually a couple inches shorter than the other, so it evens me out when I walk around. <laughs> have more with the Dodos after a short break on sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Later on, we're going to review new albums from singer-songwriter Nora Jones and the new supergroup Them Crooked Vultures. The image on the board Selling things we can't afford But we're still buying up in a frenzy Cause our hearts just yearn for more all we want is offerings be God But soon you'll be overrating us Oh, people, they can't be good When what comes next on the market should But we go on, cause it's understood But you can only hope say that they want you Yeah, they'll say that they want you when they don't It's like a chandelier Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We're talking to the San Francisco-based band The Dodos. The group is part of a new wave of indie rock bands to use African polyrhythms in their music. And I wanted to find out from lead singer Merrick Long about how organic those influences are. The way that you incorporate African influences is a lot more organic and natural than a lot of bands today that have gotten a lot of attention in the indie rock world. And yes, I will say the dreaded name, Vampire <laughs> Weekend. You, you predate them, you know, your three albums and an EP into your career, and, and you guys have been doing this longer, you know, without dissing those boys. Uh, give us some thoughts, uh, as somebody who studied Merrick Ethnomusicology, about this, you know, whenever a Western musician, pop in the pop world, brings it in, you're accused of, of, of cultural pillaging. And I think that there have been musicians who put their whole lives on the line to introduce the world to Western sounds. You think about Peter Gabriel drove himself mm-hmm. into bankruptcy with the WOMAD Festival, and certainly the way he did it on those middle-era pop albums was really, you know, pretty organic. Paul Simon, we can debate. But what do you think about this big issue? Well, um, I certainly am no expert in West African drumming. And, I mean, for me, it was the reason why it comes up and the reason why I even mentioned it in the first place, even though sometimes I regret it (laughs) to this point. (laughs) Um, Because you get questions like that, right? (laughs) Well, for me, it was like, you know, I, I grew up listening to Western pop music um, pretty much until I was like 20. And mm-hmm. then I, studying West African Away for, you know, which was only a matter of eight months. In that short amount of time, uh, it just totally melted my my ears, the way that I hear rhythm and the way that I hear uh, drums and things like that um, and percussion. And it just, it allowed me to hear the space in between beats instead of the actual beat and in terms of that it just really like freed up a lot of possibilities in my mind of what what rhythm what what rhythms to come up with and where to place you know accents and things like that and and also just kind of the role that in that music the parts separately may be really simple but when you put them together you know they're really complicated Mm -hmm. and so the idea with I, i wanted to carry on that um tradition in terms of just thinking my approach to writing music of just writing simple parts amongst various people but 
you know, instead of people playing over each other, just yeah. trying to find like a nice jigsaw. Well, it's an, an artificial battle, too. I mean, because, you know, Greg and I have interviewed any number of great African musicians, you know, Fela or Amadou and Mariam, and, and, and the latter, you know, get off on, on Pink Floyd and David Gilmore, and, <laughs> and, and Fela was listening to James Brown being broadcast on shortwave radio, you know, and so it all kind of is a circle in the end, isn't it? Right. The fact that you had that sort of unique sound, uh, I think, helped explain why you were able to quickly kind of draw a distinction between what you were doing and a lot of other so-called indie bands. That second album, Visitor, was a, was a, was big for you guys. I mean, it was basically, you know, American Logan going on the road. I saw a couple of those shows, two guys making this big noise. Why tinker with the formula? So you wanted to add an instrument to this band, this, this, this duo that was working so well. What was, the, what was the thinking behind that? Part of it was just we were tired <laughs> and, mm-hmm. the, you know, just having two of us, we felt like we always had to be making sound. I mean, we even designed our sets sort of where we wouldn't have space between the songs because when we first started playing, we were playing such small audiences that we didn't want to hear like that one like singular right. <laughs> yeah. clap in the background. <laughs> right. So it, it worked well, um, but I think we both wanted, you know, a little bit of space to have somebody else bring in some other sounds. And um, the idea for this next record was i mean with visitor we had it was the two of us and we had all these other little kind of bells and whistles that we threw on there and we had brought joe uh hayner with us on the tour for that record um and he was playing all the 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 sorts of things that we put on visitor like trash can and piano or toy piano and and even some vibraphones too and he had been in the grigri right Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah totally he's he's a fantastic drummer and through that, through touring with him, I think we kind of saw the the possibility of having somebody else there. But at the same time, we we wanted to have like one instrument that we could um, integrate into the band, so we could really work as more of a trio instead of a duo with like you know the the guy in the back playing all sorts of weird stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when we when it came time to think of what that instrument would be, the vibraphone just seemed appropriate because it has. You know, it, it's both percussive and it's um, melodic, too. Time to Die, the third album that came out earlier this year, you sort of reinterpreted the sound of the band a little bit. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, Merrick, but I, I, when, I, when I saw that title, to my mind, it was, it was a sense of like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wiping this clean. I'm, I'm, I'm destroying part of me so, so I can go forward in a lot of ways. Uh, did you feel that way, sort of? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like doing this record was a bit of a start over for us. Mm-hmm. We we had finished Visitor in July of 2007, and it came out in March of 2008. So it, that's like, what, two years? Yeah, it's two years old. So it, it felt those songs and just what we had done had kind of, it just felt old. And by the time we got to working on this record, I feel like we were ready for something different. There had been some changes in the band just a lot going on, and then we decided to go with a new producer, so it just seemed like appropriate to kind of just move on to something else. It was also, you know, after everything prior to Visitor had been me and Logan kind of running around the country <laughs> trying mm. to to be heard, and once Visitor came out and it did, you know, it did a lot of good things for us, that we kind of felt like we had the opportunity to 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 think things differently instead of just being on this sort of, like, upward ramp of, like, scrambling and mm-hmm. and trying to make noise I, I want to follow up on that but uh, let's get another song from you guys first sure what do you want to play two medicines
medicines from the dodos on sound opinions you are listening to sound opinions and we're here in the jim and k maybe studio with the dodos uh, merrick long logan krober and uh keaton snyder well, let's talk a little bit about time to die um and and the decision to you'd, you'd created this unique sound merrick and um and you went to this 
relatively high-profile producer, uh, Phil Eck, guy who'd worked with the Shins and Fleet Foxes and Built to Spill. What were you hoping to get out of that uh, relationship with, with Eck in, in making your third record? <laughs> um, well, I was hope we were hoping to really have like somebody who had an outside perspective on the band to crack the whip, I, I guess, and get us... I mean, we needed to step out of what we were doing, I felt like, and I knew that he was going to be hard on us in terms of getting the sound to a more, I guess, pristine, clear level. And we ended up getting a lot more out of it. We ended up getting a a lot of knowledge about food and... <laughs> and uh, there's the, the, there, there was a kind of nervous laugh every time you said reputation for being hard. <laughs> Give us an example of what... What kind of paces he ran you through? My trials were pale (laughs) (laughs) to those of Merrick's. Phil was more of the facilitator of robot justice for me when I was trying to do stuff to some click tracks, which is something that we've never done before. Mm. That's playing to a metronome in your head when you're drumming. Coming through the headphones while you're playing. He was, yeah, more just sort of like working the robot. Now, there's an argument, and a good one. As someone who plays it, well, I'm not a, I'm not a real drummer. I'm not a musician. I just bang on the drums, good, me right? Neither. African polyrhythmic drummers don't play to a metronome, and, and, you know, like Charlie Watts didn't play to a metronome. Things speed up, slow <laughs> down. It's, it's cool. I, I am very down with the natural flow that happens in a song if the tempo does change. But I think a lot of what working with Phil gave us was he challenged us in these ways that, you know, even though I might end up preferring to not do it that way again in the future, it made me a much better player. Mm. Like I'm able to look at a beat or a part to play from a much more calm and collected place inside my head while I'm playing now Mm. and actually see what I'm doing instead Mm -hmm. of just going like, ah. Yeah. (laughs) Let's get to the end. (laughs) So did this work out? uh, The pluses outweigh the minuses? I mean, yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Like Merrick said, uh, after a while, it became less about music and more about food. It was more (laughs) like we were all sort of like at work once it got to mixing, you know? We're sitting around the studio, like getting some stuff done, and then we'd like end up meandering over to the water cooler, which would be the kitchen. So there was cook-offs going on in between making this album. Is that what we're hearing? (laughs) We kind of, me and Logan especially during the mixing part, which was, you know, Phil's territory, we kind of found ourselves with a lot of free time. <laughs> and, and there was the, the studios we were at, both of them had really nice kitchens. I feel like part of it was also we had to do something nice for Phil while he was in there work slaving over our songs. For, so feed you know, him, yeah. Yeah, so we, we would, like, come up with an idea in the morning and go to the grocery store and then cook. And then we, we also had a, a flip camera with us that our our um, label had sent to us in order to capture the moment mm-hmm. of recording. <laughs> and so we basically just made a bunch of cooking shows with it. And um, <laughs> they they turned out pretty good. See, this is great. I, you know, having been in the studio with other bands, like the Flaming Lips have this thing where a different guy has to cook every night. You know, and I'm talking like one night it was mini hot dogs and tater tots, and the next night it was six packages of macaroni and cheese. You, you, this, so the idea of like a higher level of, of food is, is, is very inspiring. Well, I, I mean, I, I worked as a cook for a while, and then Logan also appreciates working in the kitchen. And so I think that it was, it was like a good like alternative universe of yeah. being creative. Well, especially because as a food lover, right, when you're on the road with the band, you know, you're, you're getting to the town at, at 4.30, 5 o'clock. you got to load in, right? you got sound check. You, you can't eat for four or five weeks decently when you're touring. Or did you find a way? Um, there's always a way. There's always a way. It's <laughs> oh. totally – I think when we first started out, there was more of some trepidation about, you know, eating before we play and trying to make sure that we were on top of everything. But – Nowadays, it's more like we're in this town for one day. We have this one opportunity to stuff our faces with whatever. <laughs> with the best yeah. that's in this yeah. town. Yeah, and I just can't say no to that, you know? Guys, uh, we want to thank you for uh, being our guests on Sound Opinions. Merrick, Logan, Keaton, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having us. Pleasure, man.
To listen to all of the Dodo's live songs, visit soundopinions.org. And to comment on our conversation or share any of your critical opinions on the air, call our hotline at 888-859-1800. We'll be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with reviews of new albums by Nora Jones and Them Crooked Vultures. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that voice is that of Nora Jones, Chasing Pirates, first single from her fourth album, Just Outs, called The Fall. That relates Mr. Cott to the season, not any sort of comment on Nora Jones's commercial acumen, which has been considerable. My God, mm. 16 million albums sold in the United States. 36 million albums worldwide, more records than any other jazz artist has sold in the new millennium. She is quite a success story at the ripe old age of 30. Famously, Brooklyn born and raised, but the daughter of the great Indian sitar player Ravi Shankar made her big breakthrough in 2002 with Come Away With Me, her debut album of uh, sultry cabaret jazz, five Grammys, Mm. record of the year, Best New Artist, the rare artist who seems to be bucking the curse of the Best New Artist Grammy, (laughs) uh, which says you win this prize and then you're never heard from again. We are hearing from her again. On her fourth album, The Fall, she is trying to do something a little bit different. Or maybe not. She has turned to producer Jack Wire King, who is best known as a craftsman of hipster rock efforts by the likes of Kings of Leon and Modest Mouse. And she's got some songs that she's written in collaboration with folks like uh, Ryan Adams and Will Sheff of Ockerville River. What is she doing here? Is Nora Jones rocking out? Is she reinventing herself? We'll wait and we'll give our opinions in a minute. First, here is a song called It's Gonna Be by Nora Jones on Sound Opinions.
That's Nora Jones with It's Gonna Be from her fourth studio album, The Fall. You know, she's reshuffled the cards a little bit on this record, Jim. She had been working with this bassist, uh, Lee Alexander, who also happened to be her boyfriend. He was the primary producer and uh, collaborator on, on the last three albums. He's out of the picture now. Apparently there was some kind of breakup. This album is subtly addressing that issue. Subtly. That's the key word with Nora Jones. There is Very nothing subtle. really overt about her music. But I think she was overdue for a change. I think it's a good thing. Uh, Jack Wire King introduces some noise elements into her music. There's sort of a, a turbulence bubbling beneath the surface of a lot of these songs. Although, again, subtle, nuanced. It's not really in your face. I admire Nora Jones for her understatement. I think she's a, a craftsman-like songwriter. She's very careful. I wish that she was a little bit more adventurous. On this album, she's starting to take steps away from that cabaret jazz style that you referenced that was so successful into something more like a, an art pop vein that reminds me of, you know, where Suzanne Vega's career started to head after the first couple of records. A slight reinvention of herself. I don't think she goes all the way. I think in some of the songs where she does get a little bit more frisky like it's gonna be or has some neo-psychedelic touches like that soul ballad, You've Ruined Me. I I see some promising directions here. But I can't really endorse this record. I think uh, it's still a little bit too samey sounding for me. It's a solid record. It's just not very exciting. Uh, It's a burn it record for me. Yeah, buy it, burn it, trash it is our scale, Mr. Cott. And you want to be nice to Nora Jones because she seems like a very pleasant person, you know? (laughs) And, you know, sultry, smoky, sleepy time, jazz, crooning. I mean, I have no, you know, that's okay. But I can't really recommend anybody spending any money or even wasting any time to download it. So I got to say it's a trash it. You know, Nora is Snora. That song, It's Gonna Be, is like kind of a swampy, hypnotic Dr. John Groove. And you say to yourself, geez, if only she would stretch and challenge herself a little bit. But if she's not going to do it, Greg, while working with the guy from Ockerville River and Ryan Adams and this, you know, cool producer from Modest Mouse and, and Kings of Leon, then when is she ever going to do it? I, I don't think it's going to happen. She she has a great voice and, you know, she's capable of so much more, but she just seems to love the bland. song called New Fang from a new trio called Them Crooked Vultures. Not just any trio, though. You know, we, we hate to trot out this term, but I think Supergroup probably applies to these guys if you're going to put it on anybody. Yeah. The three people in Them Crooked Vultures are guitarist Josh Homme, best known as the uh, singer and founder of Queens of the Stone Age, Dave Grohl, the lead singer in Foo Fighters, and also the drummer in a little-known band, Nirvana, and then finally John Paul Jones on bass and a whole lot of other instruments. Does the man need any introduction? The uh, yeah. One of the uh, founding members of Led Zeppelin. So the three of these guys are together at the behest of Grohl. Apparently, uh, this was an idea that he hatched about four years ago. Uh, he mentioned it to a magazine interviewer in passing at that time and said, I'm going to try to make this happen. I think this would be a really exciting possibility. Grohl was kind of the intermediary because he had worked with both Homie in Queens of the Stone Age and with Jones on uh, various projects. And they finally got together late last year, started recording at uh, Homie's Desert Studio in California, finally made their live debut after much secrecy surrounding this project, actually in Chicago on the weekend of the Lollapalooza Festival. Jim, you and I were both there for that show. Frankly, it was one of the most exciting things we saw all weekend, certainly all summer. No, it absolutely Uh, was, and it inspired us to do a whole show shortly thereafter on the tradition of supergroups in rock. Indeed, and now we finally have the product of uh, those three getting together in the studio, a self-titled album called Them Crooked Vultures, and here's a new song from it, Scumbag Blues on Sound Opinions.
that is Scumbag Blues from the much-anticipated self-titled debut album by Them Crooked Vultures. Greg, I gotta say, I lived with this album for a week, and I kept listening and listening. I listened at home, I listened in the office, I listened in the car. I kept waiting for it to kick in, because that succinct hour-long world premiere debut by this band on stage in Chicago that you and I were lucky enough to catch truly was mind-blowing. And I finally came to the conclusion that feeling my chest vibrate with every hit of uh, Dave Grohl on the bass drum and my innards being churned inside out and upside down (laughs) as uh, John Paul Jones played four, six, eight, and more string bass, that visceral experience was a big part of it. Now we have the record, which also invites us to have an intellectual experience, okay? And as you listen to Homie and his vocals, I almost feel for the guy. The the charm of this band is the rhythm section. Grohl is the drummer of his generation. And I'd much rather have Grohl behind the drums than at the mic in the Foo Fighters. But Homie had to craft the songs that would constitute the album. And these feel to me like second-rate desert session toss-off songs rather than even the filler on a, on a Queens of the Stone Age album. The songs aren't there, and his vocals are so, you know, he is this weird kind of high-pitched effeminate voice, mm-hmm. and not in a Robert Plant-like way, and not for nothing does he often have guest singers come into Queens of the Stone Age. He's not much of a singer, and here his ear for great hooks and cool tunes have failed him. The lyrics are just plain stupid. No. I will Calig no. you love me. Let let you Calig you love me. I mean, come on. You know, I think it's an embarrassment, Greg, and I'm really, really disappointed to have such talent wasted on such slight songs on this record. Buy it, burn it, trash it. It's a burn-it record at best, and only if you're a muso drummer, bass player, geek. Jim, you have never been more wrong on a record this year. <laughs> never been more wrong. Or I, never I, more wrong this year. This year. This Not year. never more wrong of all yeah, time. Uh, this month, let's put it that way. It, it, unbelievable. I, I, I can't believe that you don't like this record. I absolutely love it. The more I listen to it, the more I love it. I think it more than lives up to the promise of what we saw live that night. It's twisted it a little bit, and I love the twists in it. Homie singing to me is exactly what this record needs. The sensuality is unlike any other sound in, in hard rock. A lot of singers strain. They do have that Robert Plant bellow, or they have that Cookie Monster growl. Homie's in a class by himself in the way he's, he's addressing the vocals. The rhythm section, absolutely top-notch. But I think John Paul Jones not only is a great bass player, but the textures he adds to this record, like the clavinet on the song that we just heard, Scumbag there's Blues. Enough. There's a little grand piano. There's a little bit of Oregon. It's all over the place. There's these no. little haunting touches. You need a better stereo or something because, man, <laughs> this record is just loaded with really cool details. And you mean to tell me that this is as good as the best of the Queens of the Stone Age? Absolutely. I, I think this is this combines the best of all worlds. It, it's a progressive rock album in the ambition of the arrangements. It's got these psychedelic touches that'll take you somewhere else. And it just rocks. I mean, you know, it's a cliche, but this is a good rock record. I absolutely love it to pieces. I can't believe you don't love it. Uh, it's an enthusiastic buy it from me. Sorry, Greg. It's a burn it for me, a buy it for you on Them Crooked Vultures, a trash it from me, and a burn it from you on Nora Jones. What do we have on the show next week? Jim, our annual Thanksgiving turkey shoot where we look at uh, albums that we had high hopes for and they just completely let us down. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Mary Gaffney recorded the dodos for us. Sound Opinions was produced, as always, by our argumentative but astute team of Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn. And our fearless leader and executive producer is Tori Southside Malatia, a guy who definitely does care if any rock band person thinks he's a sellout. Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. New messages. Hey, Jim and Greg, Colin here. I'm calling from Chicago, Illinois. I'm calling actually um, to leave you guys some feedback on your 
your Weezer review. And first, let me start off by saying um, I'd like to clap you on the back with one hand and uh, say that, you know, I love your show. I don't often agree with you guys, but I respect the knowledge that you have. You guys have a much wider knowledge base than I do, and I really appreciate uh, listening to your take on uh, contemporary as well as past music. Uh, with the other hand, though, I'd like to uh, sucker punch you and say, you know, Greg, I really do usually trust you to at least provide a really good counterpoint to uh, Jim's obsession with Weezer. The new album, Ratitude, Greg, you actually committed a cardinal sin by comparing that to Brian Wilson and Pet Sounds. Let me also state that as far as pop songs having an underlying melancholia, this is something that, that Rivers did not invent. Um, a really good one, though, that brings out some of the melancholy of uh, one particular pop song is Anthony and the Johnsons take on Beyonce's Crazy in Love. Much, much, much better examples of pop songs being turned just a little bit, being subverted. Anyway, thanks so much, guys, for the uh, show. Uh, love your work. Take care. Bye. Got me looking so crazy right now, your love. Got me looking so crazy right now. Got me looking so crazy right now, your touch. Got me looking so crazy right now. Got me hoping you page me right now, your kiss. Got me hoping you save me right now. Looking so crazy, your love's got me looking, looking so crazy, Hi guys, this is Sarah from Chicago, and I have one thing to say about your prog rock show. Boring, Sydney. Boring, boring, boring. Usually I love your show, guys. Thanks. Yeah, this is Steve from Asheville, North Carolina. I just finished listening to your progressive rock podcast. Awesome. Took me back to driving around in my uh, orange and white Pinto or listening to ELP on my quadraphonic stereo. Again, great show. Take care. How you doing? This is Frank from Staten Island, New York. I am so happy that you just played a, um, a program devoted to the exploration of progressive rock. And uh, I'm a real progressive rock fan. I'm the real fan. I have, if you ever came to my house and saw my record collection, you'd be like, wow, so progressive rock, the whole damn thing. I'm very happy that you played Yes and King Crimson and that you mentioned some of the, new, the newer bands like Spock's Beard and Porcupine Tree. And um, I, I, I play this stuff as well when I go to open mics. My name's 12 String Frank. I play 12 String Guitar and uh, try to do originals and progressive rock songs. And I go to open mics. No one else is doing it, but I'm doing it. And um, I would like it if you guys actually did more progressive rock on your show, namely when you mention the new band. When a, new, when a prog rock band comes out with a new album, it'd be nice if you could review it. So why not? Again, I'm Frank. Thank you. No more messages. To give us your opinion on sound opinions, call our hotline 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. In the drawing room, a group of suspects gathered. The detective has solved the mystery. Ladies and gentlemen, the butler did it. <laughs> You'll never catch me. The butler darted to his getaway car. But what he didn't know is this is a Nissan sales event ad. Wait, what? And his car is no match for the detective's Nissan Rogue or its standard VC turbo engine. Save on one of your own at the Nissan Thrill of the Drive sales event. Now get 0% APR financing for 36 months on select models. Availability is limited.
For well-qualified buyers, 0% APR financing for 36 months available on new 2023 Altima Rogue and Pathfinder when financed through NMAC. Must take delivery from new dealer stock. 36 months financing at $27.78 per month per thousand financed. Actual down payment may vary subject to residency restrictions and NMAC credit approval. Not all buyers qualified. Dealer contribution may affect actual price set by dealer. Contact dealer for details. Offer ends to 28 23